Hello everyone, what is up? Welcome back to another episode of Killer Instinct. If you're new here, hi, my name is Savannah and I am your host of Killer Instinct. Before we get started, make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button, that way you never miss an episode. We post weekly on the podcast every Wednesday as well as on YouTube every Wednesday and you're not going to want to miss it. Now, as you guys can tell by the title of today's episode, today we are talking about the solved, brutal murder of Karen Gregory. Karen was only 36 years old when she was murdered in Gulfport, Florida in 1984. This is one of those cases where it's truly going to make you look over your shoulder, it's going to make you question who you can trust, and it's going to make you wonder if you really know people as well as you think you do. So with that being said, let's jump right on into it today. Karen Gregory was born on March 29th, 1948 in Albany, New York to her parents, Dale and Rosemary, as well as her brother, Roy. Karen was a free spirit. She loved concerts and live music. She was athletic and loved riding bikes and swimming. She also loved cooking and reading. She made friends incredibly easily and everyone gravitated to her fun-loving spirit. Karen loved to travel and explore new places, and she was incredibly artistic. Karen graduated from Nazareth College, located in Rochester, New York, with a Bachelor of Arts and a Bachelor of Science degree. One of her favorite places to travel was Jamaica, and Karen's dream was to live in Jamaica and teach art classes. And that was fully what she intended on doing with her life. However, plans changed when Karen visited Gulfport, Florida, and ended up meeting a man named David Mackey. David and Karen's personalities meshed perfectly. They truly were the puzzle piece for each other. They both had incredible wit. They were emotionally intelligent and just intelligent in general. They were ambitious. They had big dreams and goals for their life. David actually worked as a therapist for Vietnam veterans who had PTSD. And that was something that Karen really, really admired about David. Now, after doing long distance for quite some time, because Karen was still living in New York throughout the beginning of their relationship, Karen and David decided that it was time for the two of them to move in together. David had a house of his own in Gulfport, Florida, and the plan was for Karen to move in with David and start a job as a graphic designer. Gulfport, Florida is a very idyllic community. There's a beach, it's very relaxing, and it felt like a very safe community. Karen was thrilled to start a new chapter in her life, and she was always looking for the next adventure and the next opportunity. However, that makes you wonder how things could have gone so incredibly horrible when Karen was murdered the same weekend she moved in with David. So this all brings us to May 24th of 1984, and on this day, David was actually at a work conference in Providence, Rhode Island. He had been trying to reach out to Karen, however, was not getting any response from her, so he ended up growing a little worried and reached out to his next-door neighbor and asked the neighbor if she would do just a little check-in on Karen, make sure that everything's okay... 
So the neighbor agreed and walked up to the front door of David and Karen's home. She began knocking but didn't receive an answer, and that is when she walked over to the closest window that looked into the living room of the home. And it was when she did that, she saw Karen's bloody and beaten body laying on the floor of the living room. The neighbor immediately called 911 and authorities were on the scene right away. It was very clear to detectives from the second that they walked into the house that there was an obvious struggle. There was blood all throughout the house indicating that Karen had been trying to run away from her attacker. There was broken glass on the floor that indicated a fight. And sadly, Karen was pronounced dead when police arrived. Just based off of first appearance, police could tell that it appeared that Karen had been hit with a blunt object in the back of her head, and it also appeared that she had stab wounds in her chest. Now, something that was a little odd about the scene was Karen's clothing. Karen was found wearing a plain t-shirt. However, over the t-shirt, she was wearing a lingerie bodysuit. So she just had this plain oversized t-shirt, the lingerie bodysuit over the t-shirt, and nothing else on. This is something that immediately stuck out to police and made them wonder if Karen was forced to put on the lingerie. They could see that the clasp on the bodysuit had been unhooked, which led them to believe that there was a possibility of sexual assault. Another piece of evidence that police found was right next to Karen's body, there was a bloody footprint. At first, police thought that the bloody footprint could belong to Karen and it could have happened right before her fall. However, when they looked at the bottom of Karen's feet, they saw that Karen's feet had no blood on them whatsoever, which led them to believe that the footprint on the scene did in fact belong to Karen's attacker. Now, like I said, when searching throughout the home, police found an endless amount of blood. They found blood in her bed. They found blood on the curtains. There was blood on the walls. There was blood all the way into the living room and on the doorknob of the front door, indicating to police that Karen had tried to run out of the house, however, was unsuccessful. Based on the way that the blood trail was laid out in the home, as well as Karen's body being found in the living room, police were able to speculate that the attack more than likely began when Karen was in bed and ended when Karen was stabbed in the living room. So police continued to search around the house to see if there was any evidence that they could pick up. And it was while they were doing this, they found something very interesting outside of the home. On Karen's car, there was a note stuck to the windshield. This note said, quote, came by, had something for you, but there were no signs of life end quote. Now this note was signed by a man named Peter and as you can imagine police collected the note as evidence and immediately knew that they wanted to speak to Peter. Karen's autopsy revealed that Karen had been stabbed 21 times and that her throat had been slit. The medical examiner was also able to confirm that Karen had been raped during her murder. However, due to the lack of DNA technology, they were not able to gather DNA samples to make the match. The time of death appeared to be on the 22nd of May, and again, Karen's body wasn't discovered until the 24th of May. 
So the labs and tests showed that Karen had been dead for a day and a half before her body had been discovered. Now, something the police wanted to understand more at this point was the relationship between Karen and David. And I don't think it will shock any of you when I say that David was the first person that police wanted to speak to in this investigation. Not only was he the closest person to Karen, he was the partner. He was the boyfriend. He's the first person that police are always going to look at. And not only that, police were wondering if the timeline of all of this was a little bit convenient. Karen was murdered the same weekend that she had just moved into David's home and David conveniently was at a conference in a different state. To get a better understanding about Karen and David's relationship, police brought in Karen's brother, Roy, to talk through it all. Now, according to Roy, he claimed that Karen and David did have a very good relationship. However, there were a couple hiccups along the way. Roy told police that before Karen had made the decision to move to Gulfport, Florida with David, she had met a man, a different man, on one of her trips to Jamaica. Remember how I said that Karen's dream, her lifelong dream, was to move to Jamaica to teach art. Well, on one of these trips that she had gone on, she ended up meeting a man in Jamaica and the two of them began a fling. And as you can imagine, David was not too happy with this. Karen was very honest with David about the feelings that she had been having and Karen knew that she had to make a decision between David and the man from Jamaica and ultimately she chose David. But as you can imagine, that whole process would definitely cause a riff in a relationship relationship. Along with the Jamaica scandal, there was also a point prior to David and Karen moving in together that they broke up for a period of time. They didn't break up for very long. It was a short period and obviously they got back together and continued with their plans for the future with Karen moving into David's home. So it wasn't anything that was detrimental to their relationship. However, obviously for police hearing that they did have some pretty significant hiccups in the relationship they started to wonder if David's alibi about being at a conference in Rhode Island was too good to be true. Imagine an app designed to make you use it less. Seems a little counterproductive, right? Well, Apartments.com's Instant Alert feature works exactly that way. Instead of scanning rental listings a million times a day, simply set and forget your search to whatever you're looking for in a place and let Apartments.com do the rest. From pet-friendly apartments to balconies to in-unit ACs, Apartments.com's powerful search tools let you know when the perfect combination of features you're seeking is listed. So you don't have to power through rental descriptions one by one. With more rental listings than anywhere else, Apartments Apartments.com's instant alerts mean that you can spend less time looking for the perfect place and more time on just doing you. Apartments.com, the place to find a place. Police started to theorize and speculate if it would be possible for David to leave Rhode Island to come home, murder Karen, and then go back to Rhode Island to maintain his alibi. Now, after Karen's murder, 
David went directly to New York to spend time with Karen's family as well as help be there for the funeral services and the wake. However, the day after Karen's murder, David did reach out to police via a phone call and ask police what they had so far in their investigation. Now, obviously, police were not very quick to give David any information because not only was this still an active investigation, but they didn't know if David was a potential suspect or not. It was during this phone call that police had asked David to come down to the station so they all could have a conversation together. However, David informed police that he was not planning on being back in Florida for another two weeks and that when he got to Florida, he would come to the station and he would talk to police, but it wouldn't be happening anytime soon. So after that phone call and knowing that David was not going to be back in Florida for a following two weeks, police still had to continue their investigation. They decided the next best thing to do was to canvas the neighborhood and see if anyone had heard anything suspicious on the night of Karen's death. Now, multiple neighbors had claimed that they had heard a scream coming from David and Karen's home at approximately 1 a.m., Now, after multiple people confirmed that there was a scream that was heard, police decided the best thing to do was to bring in the head of the neighborhood watch program so they could have a better understanding as to what happened that night. Now, the head of the neighborhood watch program is a man named George Lewis. George Lewis was born and raised in Gulfport, Florida, and was also a Gulfport firefighter. It made sense when he decided to become the head of the Neighborhood Watch Committee, as he was someone that everyone knew and trusted, including the police. George had a very close relationship with police officers, and through his time being a firefighter, George grew a very close relationship with the first responders and police officers, and he was someone that they very much trusted. Now, George agrees to come in and talk to police about what happened that night. And according to him, he said that he also heard a faint scream coming from Karen and David's home. Now, George actually lives right across the street from Karen and David's home. So he is directly across the road from them. And according to him, he claimed that he had stayed up late on the night of the 22nd and he was working in his garage. He was working in his garage. He had loud music playing and it was at approximately 1 a.m. that he heard a faint scream coming from David and Karen's home. Once he heard the scream, he ended up turning the music down and walking out of the garage door just to see if there was anything going on or if he could see what had happened. However, he claimed that he couldn't see anything, nothing else happened after that, and so he ended up walking inside and getting back to his garage work. Now, George also claimed that the following day, the 23rd, he did see a man drive up to Karen and David's home and place a note on the windshield of Karen's car, which he found to be suspicious. And he was not the only one that found this note to be suspicious. So let's talk about this note. This note was left by a man named Peter. And at first, police didn't know who Peter possibly was. All it said was Peter. And so that really gives them an endless amount of possibilities considering it's a fairly common name. 
But things actually turned in police's favor when Karen's old roommate was the one to identify her body at the medical examiner's office. And when Karen's old roommate arrived to identify, she brought along a friend of hers. And the friend of hers that she brought along was Peter. So now police have Peter, and his full name is Peter Cumble. So police ask Peter Cumble to sit down with them and just answer a few questions, which he agreed to do. Now, upon sitting down for this interview, one of the first things that police noticed was that Peter had a giant scratch on the front of his hand. Now, when Peter could tell that the police were looking at this scratch, Peter moved his hands to under the table. However, of course, police asked him where the scratch had came from, and Peter claimed that the scratch came from his dog. Now, according to Peter, he actually did admit to being the one who left the note on Karen's car. He went on to tell police that him and Karen had known each other for approximately a year and that the two of them had plans to get dinner on the night of the 23rd. However, when he showed up at 7.30 and no one answered the door, that is when he left the note on her car. And in terms of the context of the note, when Peter wrote that he had something for Karen, he was referring to a reggae mixtape that Karen had previously lent him. So that is what he meant when he said, I had something for her. It still does not explain why he said that there were no signs of life on the note, whether that was to be witty because she wasn't answering or something like that, but it definitely increases the eeriness of that. Now, just based off of Peter's demeanor, police were suspicious just based off of the fact that Peter was not behaving in a way that one would when they had found out that their friend had passed away. His emotions seemed to be under control. He was acting very monotoned throughout the entire interview, which again is hard to judge someone by because we've seen plenty of cases by this point of people who act all different ways. When they hear news like this, there really isn't a right way to respond to something like this. However, police made note of the lack of emotion that was coming from Peter. However, regardless of his emotion, Peter was very very cooperative in handing over his DNA. He gave police his footprints, his fingerprints, and also gave him his alibi, which was that on the night of the murder, he claimed he was at home in his apartment, which was something that his roommate could verify for him. So finally, at this point in the investigation, David finally comes back to Florida and is able to sit down with police. He begins going through the history of him and Karen's relationship and says that Karen moving in with David was the start of their new chapter. And while they've had some tiffs in the past, they were really looking forward to moving in together and starting this fresh new chapter. Now, something that police really wanted to ask David about was while they were doing their initial investigation of the house, when they found Karen's body, they discovered a magazine in the home. And this magazine was of Providence, Rhode Island. And this is really what helped police curate this theory that David could have gone to Rhode Island, come back, and then went back to Rhode Island. And this is really what helped police curate this theory 
story of David going to Rhode Island, coming back to Florida to murder Karen, and then going back to Rhode Island to solidify his alibi. They actually had detectives take the flights from Florida to Rhode Island, Rhode Island to Florida, and then back to Rhode Island again. And they were able to piece together that while it would have been a tight time crunch, it would have been possible. So with that being said, when they found this magazine of Providence, Rhode Island in David's home, it really made them question if this magazine was accidentally left there from David's trip to Rhode Island. Now, David did have an answer for this magazine. He claimed that the reason that the magazine was there was because he had gone to a newsstand several days prior to his trip and picked up the magazine because he knew he was going to Providence, Rhode Island. He wanted to know what the weather was going to be like, what it looked like out there, and wanted to get a better idea of where he was traveling. He adamantly denied having purchased that magazine magazine in Providence. So police then asked David if he knew of anyone who would want to hurt Karen or if Karen had any enemies. Weirdly enough, the one person that came to David's radar was in fact Peter Cumble. David told police that Peter had an interest in Karen for quite some time and believed it was possible that Peter could have acted on those urges. David claimed that he had no knowledge of a dinner between Karen and Peter, as Peter had claimed that there was, and also claimed that there was no reason that Peter ever needed to go over to Karen in his home. So with that being said, that is where a lot of the speculation on David's part came. So at this point, after speaking with David, police decide that they want to bring Peter back in for a second interview. However, this is when they learn that Peter coincidentally skipped town. He was now on vacation. He had gone out of town and was not in Gulfport, Florida. And so because of that, police had to switch gears a little bit. They had to wait again until Peter was back in Florida to interview him a second time. And in the meantime, police decided their next best bet and the next thing for them to do would be to try and see if they could find any holes in David's alibi. They wanted to see if they could completely either clear David or clear Peter. They needed to make some movement in terms of knocking people off the list. Now, police looked through David's credit card statements. They looked through all of his finances to see if there was an extra ticket purchased, an extra plane ticket purchased that could confirm that David came back from Rhode Island to Florida, killed Karen, and then went back to Rhode Island. However, after an extensive search through his finances, there was no evidence to prove that David ever purchased another flight. Along with that, police also went to the newsstand that David claimed he purchased the Providence, Rhode Island magazine from. And the man who worked at the newsstand confirmed that they did sell those magazines. And along with that, he also confirmed that he remembered selling David that magazine. So between those two things, it really corroborated David's alibi and police were able to cross him off as a suspect. Now, after David was eliminated from the suspect pool, Peter had finally come back from his trip for a second interview. And upon first look, police noticed that Peter looked very disheveled. He looked mentally drained. And they had asked Peter at this point straight up if he had murdered Karen. And Peter 
was very offended. He acted very shocked that police would ever ask him a question like that. And so because Peter was not budging, because Peter was adamant about the fact that he did not murder Karen, police decided to take the footprint that Peter gave them and send it off to the crime lab to see if it would be a match with the footprint that was found at the scene. However, again, DNA was not nearly as advanced as it is today. And the crime lab results came back, and when they did, it showed that there were no identifying marks on the footprint that was found at the crime scene. So because of that, police knew they needed to call in the big guns, and they sent the footprints off to the FBI. Obviously, their hope in doing this was that the FBI could use their resources to find identifying marks on the footprint. Now, in the meantime of getting those results back, police decided their next best thing to do would be to go back through the evidence that they discovered at the crime scene, and that is when they noticed something. Police noticed that there was a schematic drawing in the house that had blood on it. Now, a schematic drawing, if you're unaware because I was, I had to look up what this meant, a schematic drawing is basically a diagram. It's a picture of something that is broken down. It's basically like a blueprint right? It's a blueprint picture, more or less. If I'm wrong about that, I apologize, but as that is the basic premise of it from my understanding. Now, at the crime scene, there was a schematic drawing of a clock that had blood on it, and through tracing back where these drawings came from, they were able to see that the drawings belonged to a man named Stephen Fischler, who was Karen's co-worker. This made police wonder if Stephen could have gone over to Karen's home and brought the pictures, and that is how they ended up there. And they also wondered if Stephen left them in a hurry if he had been the one to attack Karen. They started reaching out to other female co-workers of Stephen and Karen who admitted that they also felt uncomfortable around Stephen. It was alleged that Stephen would show female co-workers different pornography pictures, and some went as far as to say that they were afraid of him. Co-workers stated that Stephen did take a liking to Karen and Karen felt very uneasy around him. Stephen gave Karen a copy of a novel that he was writing, which was a provocative novel, and Karen felt incredibly uncomfortable about the entire situation. So because of all of this information, police now bring Stephen in for questioning. Now, immediately once the interview started, it was clear that Stephen was very defensive. He played down his relationship or lack thereof with Karen very much by claiming that he barely even knew Karen, barely spoke to her, saw her in the office here and there, but their relationship was nothing past that, and also claimed that he did not have an explanation as to why the schematic drawings would be found in Karen's home. So ultimately, Stephen agrees to take a polygraph test. He agrees to take this polygraph test, and when the test starts, before they were able to spit out the first question, Stephen stops everyone and says, fine, I did it. Now, as you can imagine, police were in immediate shock. They were in immediate shock that Stephen just randomly decided to confess to Karen's murder, but they started to wonder if this was 
too easy. They began asking Stephen questions that only the murderer would know, and it was clear after asking these questions that Stephen was not responsible. He did not know anything about the crime scene. He did not know anything about what Karen was wearing or what her cause of death was. And that is when Stephen admitted again that his confession was simply just out of anger that he was being accused and not because he was actually responsible. So he gave a false confession because he felt frustrated. Stephen ultimately ended up agreeing to continue with the polygraph test anyways, and he was asked questions such as, did you kill Karen? Do you know who killed Karen? Both to which he answered no, and he passed the test with flying colors. So now we're months into this investigation. Police are going down their laundry list of suspects, basically crossing people off one by one. But again, it was very difficult to get these types of cases solved during this time because the technology was just not as advanced and you have people who are randomly confessing to doing things that they didn't do you have people who aren't telling the truth people that are acting strange and the community of Gulfport as a whole was really getting disturbed and starting to think that there was a killer walking amongst them But regardless of the community's fear, the detectives did not back down from this case and they continued their investigation. They continued talking to people throughout the community and that is when they spoke to a woman who lived several blocks away from Karen. However, even though she lived several blocks away, this woman told the police that on the night of the murder, she could hear the scream and what she called a wailing scream all the way at her house, which was blocks and blocks away. This started to raise police's suspicions because when they initially spoke to George Lewis, who was the neighborhood watch, George, who lives right across the street, claimed that it was more of a faint scream. However, you have someone who's living blocks away saying that they could hear it clear as day. So police wanted to bring George back in to get a better understanding of what exactly that scream sounded like. Now, George comes back in for another interview. He's talking to police, tells them the same story that he initially told them. He was working in the garage. He heard the scream. He walked out didn't see anything. However, George did change his story this time. He claimed this time when he walked out of the garage door and looked at David and Karen's home, he saw that there was a large man hiding behind the oak tree in their front yard. George claimed that the man saw George and walked over to him and claimed that if George ever said anything, that he was going to kill him. So that's the reason that George claims that he did not tell police this in the very beginning. However, for police, they're shocked when they hear this detail because this is such a new major detail and this shifts their investigation into a totally different direction because now they're on the hunt for a new man, which George describes being about six feet, four inches tall and having red shaggy hair. So now police begin their search for a six foot four man with red hair and they begin talking to everyone in the community. However, no one is able to recall or knows of anyone who matches that description. Police also gave George a photo lineup of people that match that description. However, he was not able to pick anyone out of a lineup, but everything changed when around this time police get a phone call from a woman who claimed that she caught a man staring at her through her window. 
The woman claimed that when she saw this man, she immediately screamed and called the police. And it was on that phone call that she admitted to knowing who the man was. She could make out who this man was. And the woman identified the man watching her through her window as George Lewis. And when police hear this, they're very taken aback because for them, they had been insisting on George helping them solve this case for him to help put the puzzle pieces together. They were trusting of him. They were looking to him for information. This is someone that they really truthfully trusted. And now they're hearing that he's walking around looking in people's windows and lurking and stalking some people from the area. And it's very unsettling and very shocking. So obviously, police bring George back in again. And in regards to the women who called the police, George admitted that while he was outside of that particular woman's home, he claimed that it was just part of his job. He is the neighborhood watchman and that is what he is supposed to do. So George agrees to take a polygraph test. He takes a polygraph test. The polygraph test has questions in regards to looking through women's windows, through stalking other women, as well as the murder of Karen Gregory, to which obviously George claims that he did not murder Karen. He doesn't know who murdered Karen. He didn't know what happened to Karen. However, for all of the questions on George's polygraph test, George failed almost every single one. Now, after George gets word that he failed his polygraph test, he starts telling police that, you know, the reason that he's just withheld some information in regards to the man that was standing under the tree was because he was afraid for his life and he was afraid for his wife's life. And because yes, he also, he had a wife, but he's afraid for everyone's life. He was afraid of getting killed. And that is why he withheld so much information, blah, blah, blah. But at this point, it's like the boy who cried Wolf. He keeps changing his story. He keeps saying one thing and doing another. And police wanted to believe him. They really, really wanted to believe him. And they were giving him every chance. They actually set George up with a composite sketch artist to piece together what this man looked like. That way police could go out and hand it out to people. And when the police got the picture back, they were baffled because the drawing that George and this composite sketch artist put together looked almost identical to George when he was a couple years younger. So at this point, police decide to look into George's past and see if there's anything that they are missing to see if the poster child of Gulfport, Florida has a secret hidden history that they don't know about. And that is when they talked to George's ex-wife, so his first wife, who disclosed to police that George did have a very violent history throughout their marriage. She claimed that George had a very bad temper and that he got angry very easily. Police also spoke with one of George's friends who claimed that George had an infatuation with Karen. The specific friend remembered being at George's house one day when Karen was sunbathing outside in a bikini and George made a remark about wanting to have an orgy with Karen. But again, police wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt. They truly didn't believe that he could do something like this. They spoke to George's wife at the time, his current wife at the time, who claimed that she also heard the scream because she was also awake and she knew that George was in the garage. She claimed that approximately 20 minutes after the scream, George walked inside but did not look 
disheveled, did not have any blood on him. There was no evidence that anything was wrong, which according to police and the gruesomeness of the scene, they found it hard to believe that anyone would have been able to walk away from that scene not being covered in blood. However, 20 minutes is a decent amount of time for someone to be able to clean up their mess. Now, even though everyone wanted to believe George, there's one thing that does not lie, and that is the physical evidence. That is the DNA. The FBI crime lab was able to find some identifying factors in that footprint that was found on the scene. So now all police had to do was send in several footprints to see if any of them were a match. They sent in footprints from David, from Peter, from George, from Stephen Fischler. They sent in all these footprints and ultimately there was a match. And that DNA match was to George Lewis. So at this point, DNA doesn't lie. Police bring George back in for a final interview to confront him with the evidence that they had. When police told George that the footprint at the scene matched his footprint, he let out a giant sigh and then went on to say, I crawled through the window. George tells police that he crawled through Karen's bedroom window after hearing the scream. He claims that he walked through the house until he landed on the living room, where he found Karen's body laying on the floor with her throat slit open and ultimately got too freaked out, too scared, and walked away. But here is where George screwed up. George screwed up because he mentioned a detail that only the killer would know. He mentioned the detail about her throat being slit. Now, even the police, when they arrived in the scene and discovered Karen's body, no one there could tell that her throat had been slit. It just appeared that she had been hit with an object. She had been stabbed multiple times. There was blood everywhere. No one except the killer would have known that her throat was slit. It didn't take until after the autopsy was released for that detail to be out there and police to learn that information because even them looking at Karen's body, they could not see that her throat had been slit. And so from George's explanation of why his footprint was there, him seeing Karen If that was all true and he went in there and saw Karen's body, first of all, it's dark outside. He's not looking very closely. He would not have been able to know that her throat was slit just based off of the story that he told. That was only a detail that the killer would know. Along with that, it only brings up another boatload of questions like why didn't he call the police? Why didn't he tell his wife? Why didn't he do something? Why did he let her sit there for a day and a half? It's all very, very strange. And so ultimately, two years later, after Karen's murder on March 15th, 1986, George Lewis was arrested and charged with the first degree murder and sexual battery of Karen Gregory. Police believe that on the night of the murder, George entered the home through a window with a knife in his hand, knowing that David was out of town. They believe that George forced Karen to put on the lingerie over her shirt and that Karen had fought for her life trying to get out of the house. But ultimately, when Karen put up a fight, George ended her life, stabbing her 21 times and slitting her throat after raping her. George pled not guilty to the charges against him. However, the jury saw through it and convicted him, and he has been sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. And that, you guys, is the case of Karen Gregory. 
This is one of those cases where it's truly horrifying. Someone who is in a position of authority being a neighborhood watch, but that's still someone who people look at as a sense of security, a sense of safety, someone who's going to be there to protect and to know that that is the same person that will turn around and brutally and viciously murder someone in their own home is truly terrifying so i'm really interested to hear what you guys have to say about this one but with that being said you guys that is all for me today thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of killer instinct again if you're new here hi my name is savannah and i'm your host of killer instinct make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button that way you never miss an episode we post weekly on the podcast every wednesday and on youtube as well and you're not gonna want to miss it i'll be back next week with a brand new case for you guys and until then stay safe bye guys